Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. I am your host, Michael Delaware, and today I've got a special guest with me who's the director of the history programming for the Historical Society of Michigan. And he's going to talk with us today about some stories of Berrien County. So I'd like to welcome Robert Myers from the Historical Society of Michigan. And you're also part of the Myers Center for Michigan History. Is that correct, Robert? Well, that's our uh, that's our home base here in uh, Lansing is the Meyer Center for History here. Okay. Well, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved with uh, researching history and the centers that you work for? Sure. Uh, I've worked uh, for the Historical Society of Michigan for about uh, four or five years now. Before that, I worked for the Berrien County Historical Association. So I'm pretty familiar with the area uh, around the St. Joseph Benton Harbor area. Uh, Berrien County is the most extreme Southwest Michigan County, right. uh, just north of South Bend, right on Lake Michigan. And uh, so that was my that was my home for a long time. So you were based out of St. Joseph or? Actually, the little town of Berrien Springs. Oh, okay. Which is in the center of the county. It's the original county seat for the county of Berrien. It was a little town, but they put it there in the center, as many counties did, because that way it was equally inconvenient for everybody to get there. Everybody <laughs> had to drive they, they sometimes do that with those counties. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, can you tell us some stories about the region? Oh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stories about Berrien County. Uh, it, uh, it was uh, a a French community back in, we often think of the French communities in Michigan as uh, like Monroe or up at the Straits of Mackinac, but uh, Berrien County was, or what's now Berrien County, was home to Fort St. Joseph, which was a colonial French fort. It was um, uh, originally a mission founded by the Jesuits about 1684. Wow. And then uh, the French government came in and built a, a fort there in 1691. It was a French post uh, until the end of the French and Indian War in 1763 when, when it became uh, a British post. And uh, so it's a, a fascinating history with Fort St. Joseph. Um, one of the individuals there, a uh, very highly esteemed French officer, Louis Coulon de Villiers, uh, grew up at Fort St. Joseph. His father was a commander. When he became an adult, he was the, he uh, became uh, commander of Fort St. Joseph. He and his brother, who uh, went uh, by Jumonville, uh, was, uh, he also grew up at the post. The two brothers grew up there. Later on in the, in the 1750s, Jumonville was out in Pennsylvania. He uh, was leading a diplomatic mission, encountered a party of Virginians who opened fire on him and his group, killing him. This was in peacetime. Wow. Uh, his brother, Louis, uh, avenged uh, Jumonville's death and uh, attacked the rather hastily constructed post that the uh, that the Virginians had built a place called Fort Necessity. They attacked the post with uh, their Native American allies and overwhelmed them and compelled uh, de Villiers to surrender. And the one of the reasons that, that, well, two reasons that that is remembered. One is 
It touched off the French and Indian War here in North America. Wow. The is that the Virginia commander who Duvivier uh, defeated was George Washington. Oh, that's right. I remember that that connection. Well, they were. This was in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, but the the de Villiers family, I'm probably butchering the French, but the yeah. de Villiers family uh, was from Fort St. Joseph and uh, had a great connection uh, there wow. to, uh, uh, with, with the whole beginning of the French and Indian War. That's amazing. That is amazing. So I have been to St. Joseph many times and I look at the cannon that they have there looking out over Silver Beach yeah. and... Is that what we're looking at? Is like the remnants of the fort or parts that were taken from the fort? No, the fort was in Niles, Michigan, what's now Niles, Michigan. There okay. is a huge cannon on the bluff overlooking Lake Michigan in St. Joseph. You can visit it today. It's a right. great site. Uh, that was cast in 1864, and it was placed on a uh, warship called the Marion uh, later on. And... Uh, the Marion uh, it never fired a shot in anger, uh, even though it was uh, the cannon was cast during the, the American Civil War. It never fired a shot in anger. But in 1898, the government, it had been taken off the Marion, placed in storage, as many of these huge artillery pieces were. This is an 11-inch gun, so it fired a, an 11-inch yeah, shell. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Uh, well, they placed it in storage. And then in 18, uh, about 1898, it came to St. Joseph in 1898, and I think it was that year or the year before. But at any rate, uh, what was then the War Department declared that all of these artillery pieces were surplus. Well, what mm -hmm. to do with them? Well, well they let uh, all of the Grand Army of the Republic posts around the country know that they could have these guns if they wanted them. The Grand uh -oh. Army of the Republic was the Civil War veterans. They were uh, sort of the equivalent of the American Legion or veterans of foreign wars today. Uh, but at that, it was the Grand Army of the Republic. So any post that wanted one could have one of these guns. Right. So you see them all over the place, often in cemeteries, um, various war memorials, things like uh -huh. that. They got this one hauled into St. Joseph. They uh, brought it in by rail. Somehow or other, they hauled it up that steep bluff into St. <laughs> Joseph uh, and uh, and then dedicated it in, in uh, I think it was um, uh, 4th of July, 1898. Uh, they dedicated this gun. Wow. Uh, it originally had a, a stack of cannonballs uh, beside mm -hmm. it that would fit the gun, but they disappeared, probably uh, melted down in World War II for scrap metal. Right. But a few years ago, uh, some locals got together and they uh, they had cast aluminum ones made and stacked <laughs> up there to kind of mimic it. Right. Okay. So that's what those are there because I filmed around there. I remember seeing the balls. So those aren't the original cannonballs there. They are not. No. Nope. <laughs> that's interesting because in World War II, there were a lot of those cannons turned into scrap iron. I know there was one at Oak Hill Cemetery here in Battle Creek that had oh, yeah. uh, turned into scrap iron. A funny story behind that is the the crane, they were loading it on the trailer uh, for the to take it to the, the railroad, it broke too, so they ended up throwing the, tr the crane and the cannon 
onto <laughs> the railroad car. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, so, all the World War II scrap drives. So are there, uh, you mentioned there was a, originally a, a parish or a French church. Is it, Was there a church over there in Niles? Like yes. a, a historic church? Yes. Um, we don't know very much about the appearance of Fort St. Joseph, but it uh, the Jesuits established a mission there. We don't know even exactly when, but probably 1684. Their right. land grant was confirmed by the French crown in, 17, or in uh, 1686. So we know that they were there by then. So probably about right. 1684. They would have had some kind of uh, of church building. We don't right. know. There, there are no surviving descriptions of it. Okay. But, we know it was there. That's fascinating. Was there a big milling towns up in um, Berrien County? All kinds of mills. Yeah. Uh, like many areas of Michigan, Berrien right. County's town started out as uh, what I call uh, using the, the products of fields and forests. Uh-huh. And so there were furniture. There they had hardwood forests. So it was old right. hickory, maple, walnut. And these mills, uh, there were sawmills that would turn the um, turn the hardwood lumber into boards, building materials, and that sort of thing. A lot of furniture factories. Uh, the town of Buchanan had several furniture factories. St. Joseph had a big factory that made uh, house doors, interior and exterior wow. doors. Um, so all of those sorts of things. And then the products of the um, of the fields. They were um, milling uh, flour, uh, wheat for flour. Also, uh, whiskey, a lot of whiskey. Wow. And the reason for that was that you had uh, grain as a bulk crop. You had all this grain, but it was a bulk crop. Right. So it, it was very expensive to ship it anywhere. But in the 1830s, 1840s, you could take that uh, grain and just condense it down into whiskey and bottle it, put it in kegs, bottle it up, send it <laughs> off. There was always a ready market for whiskey. Right. And you're, that was fairly close to the Chicago Trading Center with a fort in Chicago as well at that time, right? There, there was, uh, yeah, you're right close to Chicago, uh, but you could send it anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, the St. Joe, well, the St. Joseph River runs through Berrien County, empties out into Lake Michigan at uh, St. Joseph Benton Harbor. So people could transport whatever they wanted by water, which was vastly cheaper than any other mode of transportation. And by using the Erie Canal, they could send it all the way to the Atlantic Ocean by water. Wow. Okay. And so things like whiskey, it had a, became a big market, market wow. everywhere. Yeah. Well, wow. and, and people drank a lot back then. In the 1830s, a man was considered a moderate drinker if he consumed no more than a quart of whiskey a day. Yeah. Wow. So, like them, uh, yeah. of course, they also worked really hard in the fields and these and these mills. So they probably were. That was probably their only uh, form of aspirin at the end of the day, anyways. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a fatigue deadener. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, we had all of these mills, uh, grist mills, grain mill, uh, flour mills uh, for grain, and then the sawmills, uh, the um, furniture factories. So they, they take all of those uh, natural materials that they have there in uh, in the area, turn them into finished 
products. And then in the 1870s, 80s, that sort of uh, dries up to some extent. Right. And they turn to other factories, foundries, that sort of thing, heavy industries uh -huh. that uh, produce finished goods from raw materials. Um, so there were there were companies like Clark Equipment Company in Buchanan, uh, which also had uh, factories in Battle Creek and Jackson, uh, and they're making truck axles and transmissions and that sort of thing. Um, wow. There's uh, uh, foundries like Benton Harbor Malleable, um, Auto Specialties Company that made car jacks and other products for the automobile industries. Uh, Whirlpool, what's now Whirlpool Corporation, gets its start right. in St. Joseph as the Upton Machine Company, making washing machines. Uh, Simplicity Pattern Company, people that do a lot of sewing know about Simplicity Pattern. Right, right. And Niles. Uh, so lots of these uh, companies that uh, made all kinds of products and sold all over the country and indeed all over the world. Wow, that's quite amazing. Yeah, I, I never, I knew about Whirlpool, but I didn't know about Simplicity Patterns. That's uh, definitely well known. I remember seeing those on my mom's sewing machine stacked up there. Um, oh, my mother's too. Yep, they were very popular. Yep, uh, and they probably still are in existence. What, what was the earliest newspaper? If they had a settlement there at Jesuits, they use didn't the Jesuits usually start newspapers quite early yeah. on? I know they did in the Detroit area. Yeah, there there were no newspapers there during the colonial era in okay. the Okay. Uh, the first ones were started in the um, I think in the yeah about about eighteen thirty five I think the Niles newspaper uh, was started, which uh, uh, is available on microfilm. We're very very lucky as historians. Wow! So they preserved a lot of those. Yeah, the the paper is 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 preserved. Uh, so they had. Um, Oh gosh, there were there were a number of papers in Niles. Most of those towns had two or three newspapers. So there was the Niles yeah. Intelligencer, the Niles Gazette, and Advertiser. I think it was called uh, the Niles Republican, which was a, a Democratic Party paper, but it was called the Republican because it was named before there was ever a Republican Party. Right, right. So lots of lots of newspapers in the county. Well, that's that's a good that's a great way to start with looking at history of what was going on and to the date check stuff. They, going back to the eighteen thirty area, that's a that's a little earlier than some of the other parts of southwest Michigan. Yeah, it is so, very early you know. newspapers. If as people have remarked, the newspaper is the, the diary of a town. It really is, yeah. You know. Um that's been a, a way I've been able to put a lot of my research and stories together. So any other uh, tidbits of history? Were there any wrecks off the coast there that were significant? Because I know oh, it's a coastal. Um, yeah, shipwrecks. It, it was a, an important shipping town. Uh, St. Joseph Benton Harbor was a major commercial port on uh, Lake Michigan. Uh, one example was uh, unknown today. Uh, but a steamer called the Hippocampus in 1868. It was brand new. It was or nearly new. It was built in Benton Harbor, right. and uh, in uh, the fall of 1868, it was carrying peaches to Chicago. It's a big fruit producing area, and wow. they had a bumper crop of peaches. They had six steamers running every day around the clock hauling peaches to Chicago. 
Well, they overloaded the hippocampus in the harbor. Uh, in fact, it was so overloaded that when they cast off, it was grounded to the bottom. They'd even, oh. put, they'd even put peaches in the lifeboat. Wow. Uh, and so, but they wallowed out into Lake Michigan and they got about halfway across Lake Michigan and the hippocampus sank by the stern, rolled over and went down. It, it went down in just a couple of minutes. Wow. And uh, most of the passengers and crew were lost. There were, I think, 26 uh, who lost their lives and uh, only 15 survivors. So that's incredible. It's never been found. And the irony of it is that the man whose peaches overloaded the ship, he was a fruit dealer in Benton Harbor named Alvin Burridge. Uh -huh. His peaches were the ones that overloaded the ship. He was one of the ones who lost his life. <laughs> Got a little bit too greedy there, I guess. Wanted to get almost twice as much that it could carry in one yes. load. Huh? Yes. That is uh, quite a story. Well, I appreciate you uh, joining me today, Robert. It's been fascinating. You know? Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here with you on the podcast. Well, great. Could you tell us a little bit about the Historical Society of Michigan if people wanted to reach out and find out more of them, about them? Sure, I'd love to. Um, we're on, on the Internet, of course, uh, hsmichigan.org. A lot of people uh, mistake us for the uh, or confuse us with the uh, State Museum, Library, and Archives. Those are our good friends, but we're a totally separate organization. A lot of people know us best because we publish Michigan History Magazine, and uh, that's a bi-monthly magazine. Uh, oh, we do okay. conferences, educational programs, awards. Uh, we uh, uh, we uh, oversee Michigan History Day, which is sort of a science Olympiad for uh, students in grades uh, 4 through 12. So we have, we have a lot of functions here, and uh, we wear a lot of hats. That's great. And you also are connected with a lot of different museums around the state, right? We do. That's one of our uh, areas uh, that we uh, handle as well, is uh, coordinating uh, things, service to history museums, historical societies, libraries uh, that have history rooms, heritage rooms. Uh, so we, we work with them to, uh, to a great extent on coordinating different things, helping them out with workshops and that sort of thing. Well, that's great. This has been a wonderful tour through history. We covered a lot of different topics, and I really appreciate you taking the time today, Mr. Myers. It's been uh, wonderful to learn that, about that portion of the, the state, and that being the, the corner county bound there. Yeah, right next it's right next to Indiana and Illinois. And so that's going to do it for today's journey through history. If you enjoyed today's interview here on Tales of Southwest Michigan Past, please take a moment to leave a review on whatever app you're using. And if you know other historians in your community in Southwest Michigan and you'd like to have them on as a guest on my show, please feel free to reach out to me at michaeldelaware.com through one of the contact forms on there. I'd love to hear from you. Once again, thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time as we take another journey into the past.